This week, America lost an icon. WVON is celebrating the life of Professor Timuel Black. Here's an exclusive interview featuring Professor Black and Melody Span Cooper, CEO of Midway Broadcasting, as they explore the history of blacks in Chicago. Rest in power. This old man's voice is a legend, and we're so honored. Uh, I just wanted to have a, a respectable conversation with you about blacks in Chicago, because I can't think of a person alive who could tell our story better than you. I, I read your book. I've seen you in interviews. And I think of when it comes to Black Chicago, you're like our encyclopedia. And well, so, there's just a few of us around. Who still. else Who else is that probably has the knowledge that you do? Clarice Davis. Clarice Durham. Really? Durham? Yeah. Really? Uh, Mark Durham's. Mark Durham's mother. Mother. His mother. His mother. Yeah. Clarice. Yeah. And she is still active. Really? In, uh, in another organization dealing with civil rights and civil liberties. Uh-huh. I'll get the name of the organization right over here. Okay. But Clarice is maybe a year or two younger, but still active. Active. And she could give you uh, quite a story about much of the black political life. Right. Because she and her late husband, mm-hmm. Richard, uh-huh. were young people that helped to organize what became known right after World War II as the Progressive Party, which had a great deal of responsibility for breaking racial segregation officially. In Chicago? In the Army. In the Army. In the Army itself. See, when I went to service, the Army was prejudiced. Mm -hmm. Well, it still is, but, I mean, it was racist so much, obviously, that the Tuskegee Airmen were not accepted, although most of those guys could already fly. And most of them had college degrees, but they didn't want them to get the credit of being combat. Right. And so many of our friends, uh, like Clarice and I graduated from high school together, and many of our friends who wanted to be in combat but would would have had qualified to be commissioned officers, they didn't want Negroes to have that honor. Did they make the same amount of money? They, the officers, yes. Okay. They were, the money was not a thing that was the problem. It was... Can you do the best you can that you know how to do? And these were fellows who wanted to be in combat from the 8th Regiment Armory and from New York. They had uh, a unit that was all black with black officers. And uh, Detroit and Chicago had this 8th Regiment. And they wanted, these were friends of mine who wanted to be combat. But they didn't want them to get that honor. To get that honor. Get that kind of honor. Them to be like, I have turned out to be in service units. Well, the service unit that I was in, <laughs> we held the supplies that supplied the combat units. Without our supplies, they wouldn't have any ammunition. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have all the other, but we wouldn't get the credit. Did you go there after high school? I was drafted in 1941, I mean 1943. I graduated from high school in 1937. And were you born here? I was born in Birmingham, Alabama, but the story goes, this is fairy tale almost, but it has a <laughs> truth, that things were so bad in the South at that time that when I looked around and saw what was going on, I was eight months old, I said to my mama, I'm leaving here. <laughs> <laughs> mama said to Dad, Dixon, this boy getting ready to leave here, and he doesn't even know how to change his diet, I'm going with him. <laughs> but that humorizes 
what was felt. No, my mother and father brought my brother and sister here mm-hmm. when I was eight months old. I was born December 7th, 1918. Wow. A famous day in history for me. Mm-hmm. That's right. December 7th, 1941, I was hanging out in my favorite tavern on 63rd and near Vernon's 113 Club, which was owned, by the way, by one of the Policy Kings. Right, the Jones Brothers? <clears throat> the Kelly Brothers. Kelly Brothers. The Kelly Brothers. They were different than the Jones Brothers. Okay. That's another story. Okay. Alec Kelly on that. Mm-hmm. That was a cover-up mm-hmm. for his, at that time, illegitimate business. But it was a hangout, and they had done. And that was when, right after the first Hansberry case, Hansberry versus Lee, had gone to court. And that's another story. The mm-hmm. Mr. Hansberry, Carl Hansberry, What's your name's father? Uh, Lorraine Hansberry. Lorraine Hansberry's father. Who wrote um, Raisin in the Sun. Yeah. Right. Well, that was written written by, uh, the, the poetry was written by Langston Hughes. Oh, really? She took it with his permission and transferred it into wow. stage play. But anyway, Mr. Hansberry, uh, li- though they didn't live in an overcrowded situation because they lived quite well. I mm-hmm. know I was there. Grocery boy. What was it? Well, was he a doctor or something? He was. Uh, he was an educated man, right? He, oh yeah, most of those people like that. Mm-hmm. The Jones brothers. They were educated. They were not. The Jones brothers' father was a minister. Anyway, going going back, my family had just moved to that area that restrictive covers were no longer enforceable. And in that case, Mr. Hansberry had one of his white friends buy a piece of property. From 63rd to Washington Park, 60th Street, restrictive covenants were enforced there. Restrictive covenants was an agreement between landlords and landowners that they would not rent or sell to Negroes. Mr. Hanbury had this friend buy that, sell it back to him. It was challenged, that sale. Now, Mr. Hanbury took it to court. He was quite well off. And the case, I tell my white Jewish friends, in Chicago, when that went to the court, the judge who said his rights had not been violated was white Jewish University of Chicago law school graduate. Mr. Hansberry had the resources, the money to take the case all the way to the Supreme Court. Wow. And the justice who read the majority decision was an ex-Ku Klux Klansman by the name of Hugo Black, from which I get my slave name. Wow. Hugo Black in order to get to where he finally arrived as a Supreme Court justice, had to belong to the Ku Klux Klan because the Ku Klux Klan controlled the political life of all politicians in the South. So I say that in humor to my white Jewish friends <laughs> from the University of Chicago. <laughs> because I want to understand that race matters. Right. And it can be enforced. It can be enforced by people who should, be, the, who should the be their friends. Right. <laughs> so we were living at 6230 Vernon, and I used to hang out. 63rd was a very active street mm-hmm. at that time on all levels. And that's where the, the 113. So in December the 7th, we didn't have television in those days, just radio and newspapers. So we would listen to George Oliver, who also later became a prominent playwright, and Joe Bowles, who became a prominent doctor. We were just having fun, listening to the music on uh, what was then jukebox, we called it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they kept saying, Pearl Harbor's been bombed. I'm celebrating my birthday and Pearl Harbor's been bombed on the radio. And I turned to George and I said, she shouldn't have drank so much. (laughs) (laughs) 
at that time, if you bombed a stone, that meant right. you were good. But I, when I came home, I found you, out that Pearl knew, Harbor was, the, the reality was of a it. place, not a, not, a, not a woman. So you got to Chicago in the 1918. 1919. 1919. Right after the race ride. And where did you all move? To the south side. Oh, really? For the, let's see, this is right after the race ride. And the old neighborhood called Grand Boulevard was white. But however it happened, my mother had friends who were already here, and we moved to 49th and St. Lawrence. And one of her white friends, because the ride was still having, we we moved here in August, the ride was in July, said, Maddie, if, if somebody's, and they wouldn't let the men come home if there was any possibility of violence. My father was working in a steel mill, as he had worked in a steel mill right outside of Birmingham, Bessemer Steel. Maddie, if... If anything happens, you just you and the children just come here, and you'll be all right. That was the first time that she'd had that kind of friendly experience from a white person mm. who felt. And that's another reason to understand the contradictions that go into race as well as race. There are contradictions. Why would a white Jewish person say restrictive covers are all right, and an ex Ku Klux Klan in the South said it's a violation? Mm-hmm. It's hard to figure that until you see the personal involvements That's of right. the contradictions that go into race. When you got here, Professor Black, were you able to go to school? Were there any uh, problems with you all being enrolled? I know it was right after the race rise, and this is uh, three or four years before you probably started school, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did that, you have that, any problems going to school? And where did no, you go? We see with the restrictive covenants, a, it was profitable. A white person would sell to a black family a piece of property. It was almost block by block by block. And then he would say, the Negroes are coming in here, and all the whites would move. He had paid minimum price for that property. He could then sell it to a black family in this overcrowded ghetto for twice as much. Mr. Hansberry made some money like that, too. But wow. That was, but he had a different attitude about right. what he should be doing. And uh, so the neighborhood that we moved into, the Grand Boulevard neighborhood, roughly from 43rd Street or 39th Street on the north to 51st Street on the south, from the east side of what was then Grand Boulevard, later became South Park on the east, to Cottage Grove on the west. That was the Black Belt, mm-hmm. as Robert Abbott coined it. So that population of Caucasians fled real quick. So the school, when I first went to school, the school, Fuller Elementary School, 40th and uh, Forestville or something, was mixed my kindergarten. By the time I transferred, now we were moving and transferring fast as possible to avoid the get over the congestion. Mm-hmm. When I went to Forestville, which was located primarily in the same neighborhood, it was almost all black. Faculty was mixed, all women, but mixed. But as far as the teachers were concerned, we were their children. Let me ask you something. How did your family come here that early and avoid moving to the west side? I thought the people that came early in the migration all went west. Mm -hmm. And then that second migration, explain to me how blacks got on the west side of Chicago. That's the second great migration. The first great migration, primarily. Now, there were always blacks in Chicago, starting with DuSable, DeSabler, DeSabler. Later changed to do Sable, but when they named the school Disabled, and that's another story, people start laughing and calling it Disabled. <laughs> and so 
They changed the pronunciation to Drusawa. No, you know, this Jean-Baptiste Pointe Sable was Haitian. Father was French, white. His mother was Haitian. I don't think that family was ever enslaved. And that's another story about many blacks who came to America who were never enslaved. And so there were always runaway slaves you know, in Chicago, and not in big numbers. But when World War One occurs, most of the blacks who were coming north had been blacks who lived in, who though they had been sharecroppers, like my mother and father had been sharecroppers, former, the children of former slaves. They had lived in urban areas of the South and had jobs. They'd learned the discipline of a job that was not in a plantation or something. One deal by the weather and the other deal by time. And so... They, with World War I, a lot of jobs began to be available in the North. And these blacks were encouraged to come North from the South who had this discipline and these skills of working a job from, at that time, from 6 o'clock <laughs> to 8 o'clock. But mm-hmm. that was a discipline. And had the social and cultural skills as well as the work skills. And so they, for the most part, fled the South. They began to flee the South because there were economic opportunities. And that first great migration fled the South primarily, not because they were in poverty, because they weren't. The place where I was born, I don't know if it's still there, but when I visited Birmingham one time, the little section outside where the blacks were confined, uh, the house was still there. I did have a picture. I don't know where I can find it or not. My mother holding me in her arms on the porch of the house where, where I was born. So they fled the South for three basic reasons. Ku Klux Klan would lynch these aggressive blacks, male and female. A lot of people don't know that black females who were aggressive were also tortured and used. And so they fled for three reasons, to be able to fight back if they were attacked, to be able to vote in the first blacks of that period, mathematical kind of way, outvoted the immigrants Mm -hmm. from Europe, and to get a better education for their children. Because in the South, even in the urban areas, you couldn't go very far mm-hmm. in school. But all of them that I know of could read, write, and count. Now, they came, and many of them were met by friends or relatives at the 12th Street Station and who lived on the South Side and encouraged them to live on the South. There were always a few blacks on the West Side, but not in the mass that came in the first great migration who moved to the south side because that was in much more proximity to the jobs that they they didn't move to the stockyards area because but, but it was close that was the daily area where mm-hmm. the, the white gangs that had killed that boy and they moved to the south side and they were roughly confined from about 26th Street on the north to block by block, 35th, 39th, 43rd, and but to the east side of what was then the Rock Island Railroad track, now the Dan Ryan Express, to the west side of Cottage Grove. And the population density in that congested area was four times that in adjoining white communities. Now, when you look at the housing stock in that area that I've just described, those were not shacks, except on the side of the west side of State Street, which were why blacks bought those frame houses. A few of them are still standing up there today along the Dan Ryan. You talk about west of the Dan yeah, Ryan. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I yeah. see them. 
Yeah. Now, these were not illiterate, but they were confined. And in that congestion, whenever they had a chance to get more space for their children. Now, another thing about that first great migration is because they lived in urban areas of the South, they seldom had more than three children. My mama would say, how are you going to pay for them? Children in the urban areas cost money. Mm-hmm. In the rural, they bring in money. In the rural agricultural And so that's a very distinctive difference between the first great migration, those three elements. And then because they were confined in this congested area and because they had friends who were already here, they controlled and created what we call parallel institutions, parallel uh, political. First black congressman after Reconstruction, Oscar de Priest, was from the south side of Chicago. Businesses. We couldn't go to barber shops, so those skilled barbers from Tuskegee and other places, they became a barbers. Women couldn't go to get their hair dressed and gossip, so they were parlors. And Madame Malone, who created Poro College and was one of the first female, black or white, millionaires, created Poro College, which trained young women to be able to do hair so uh, we were we were progressive back then because of the restrictions because we had to be amongst one another mm-hmm. and and because of that, we created robust businesses in a very segregated kind of way, yeah well, in a humorous way, if you're getting ready to die you you couldn't you didn't you didn't have the funeral parlor to go to, so you had to wait a while right <laughs> so, so the funeral parlors right like. Before that, the Jacksons, before the Rainers, and all that, mm-hmm. the Jacksons. And this is in the late 18th, late 18th, see, with that little colony. Couldn't go to white churches, so had our own religious institutions. Right. When my mother and father came in, they went to Quinn Chapel. Quinn Chapel had originally been established by a free black and was a place for runaway slaves. And then because many of them were fair-skinned, after the second fire, after 1863 and so, they had been church. 1840s, they took one of their light-skinned brothers and had him buy some land where Quinn Chapel is now located. At 20, uh, what is 24th, it? Mm-hmm. 24th and, and Wabash. Mm-hmm. And you go and get the history of that. Then they, uh, recreation. So they imported the talent from the South, like, you know, the popular one would be Louis Armstrong. But before that, there were black creating jazz, down-home blues, not down-home blues, city blues, and uh, jazz, and later gospel. See, the distribution of talent was confined and combined, confined and combined in that ghetto that Robert Abbott coined as the Black Belt. Later now, we call it Brownsville. And uh, then when the whites began to flee the area that was housing-wise, more like the housing along South Park and Michigan, those who could afford it moved east. And you get now at the first great migration, and blacks are moving further south. There were always blacks who lived in Inglewood. It was Mm -hmm. kind of a mixed population. There were always blacks who lived in southwest Woodlawn from 63rd to 67th. It was mixed, however, and there was interracial relationships in those places, but relatively small. But the biggest bulk were in that area that I've described from roughly starting and eventually being the 67th on the south and still 26th on the north mm-hmm. and the east-west areas. So in that area was a concentration of the talent and the opportunities, insurance, hair care, the uh, other things that people almost 
and the urban areas have to have. Have to have to survive. And so the, all of that talent, and then because of the diversity, dumb people like me could see examples of how you can move ahead and still be dumb. My <laughs> mama could look down the street and point to when we live in 51st in Michigan. She'd say, see Dr. Dawson down there? He look like you. You can do that. His son, Julian, and daughter had to play with me. We go to the same elementary school, Burke Elementary School. And so a generation later, because I have learned from their backgrounds and all, I have his children, when I'm teaching at Hyde Park High School, Wow. They could go home and brag, Daddy, I have Mr. Platt. <laughs> he could brag back at him, oh, T.D. and I went to school. Today. That's right. So there was that mixture. They learned how to be dumb for me. I learned how to be <laughs> smart from them. You see, But so, because we were all there together, we just we, kind of fed off. Mm-hmm. There was a feeling of kinship. It has nothing to do with heritage in terms of blood, no. There was a friend, friend, and as Hillary Clinton has borrowed from African culture, it takes a village to raise a child. And in that village, we, with those factors of the first great migration, we, even during the Great Depression, when people were being laid off, like my dad and all, and people like him, we knew that we were poor, those of us who were, but we were not depressed. We felt one day, as goes in the spiritual, trouble don't last always. Mm-hmm. Oh, my Lord. Oh, That's my right. Lord. We could see a future. And we saw the possibilities in these personalities that were part of our neighborhood. So could we say that the Black Belt was a economically viable, it was kind of booming because the money was insular? The we, dollar they, at that period of time of the first great migration, the dollar turned around six times. So though my father worked in stockyards and a steel mill, they couldn't spend their money outside of the black dell. So dad would bring his money home and give it to mama, and she would dictate how it was going to be spent, but it was going to be spent in the ghetto, in wow. the black belt. Six I times. never worked outside the black belt until I was ready to go to college. We organized. We couldn't join union, the church union. We organized our own retail clerks. St. Louis Kelly, J. LaVert Kelly, was the organizer. And we had a theme, don't spend your money where you can't work. Because we were the sole patrons primarily of all the businesses, though most of the small businesses were owned by Jewish merchants, ma and pa stores and all that, they had to hire me. And so they had to be cordial, treat me right, also teach me how to cheat so that <laughs> I'd learn something about business. That's right. And many of it. But the Jones brothers and the Kelly brothers, the Kelly brothers came out of being trained by the early bootlegger gangsters and stuff. Jones brothers came out of another kind of Their father was a minister. They were college. Since they couldn't get the jobs that they were capable of, they saw an opportunity in the numbers, which had its origin and sense in New York. But the Italian gangsters controlled it, and Jewish, mer- well, Jewish skilled people mm-hmm. were the lawyers and accountants. <laughs> Who came first, the Jones brothers or the Kelly brothers? I think they were parallel. Oh, they were there together. They were there together. They were both educated, both educators. One different background. Mm-hmm. Jones brothers were more elitist. Okay. The Kelly brothers were more tough guys. Uh-huh. And what they, happened to the policy runners in the, in our community back then? What they were making more money than people working in regular business. Policy runners, and they had 
stations all around. The young women would be the clerks in those stations. And what were the stations? Stations were sometimes located in legitimate businesses, like the back of barber shops. But some of them were pretty open, and nickels and dimes would pile up. And that's the reason they were allowed to flourish, because they were protected by the gangs, and the gangs protected much of a political. And so they had policy wheels, as we called them all over the South Side. And people who did not be crooks, my mother had a policy station, and the people in the neighborhood would come and play with her. And then, uh, oh, I forget his name now, he, he, he refused to get out when the gangsters took over and they killed him. But uh, they were uh, friendly, and women would go to the policy station just to talk with each other sometimes, mm. spending nickels and dimes. Mm-hmm. And there was a book that told you what to play, like it was a book, 369, that means this 41144, that means this. Mm-hmm. And so it was a humor that was involved. It was a community that bred entrepreneurship, it sounds Oh, absolutely. The first 10 black certified public accountants in the country came out of the black belt because there were businesses for them to serve that were owned by blacks. The policy business had to have lawyers. It had to have accountants and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So in addition to blacks are beginning to own and operate small businesses themselves along 47th Street, the taverns, the barbershops, all of those. We couldn't go to the Chinese restaurant, so we had our own restaurants mm-hmm. and things. I'm using 47th Street because 35th Street had originally been the business area where blacks began to emerge, 35th Street where jazz and blues and all that period. That's why Chicago is known so much for its jazz and its blues. But those clubs city, were... City blues, huh? City, city blues, huh? Mm-hmm. It's yeah, different. Different from the blues that they had in the Delta blues. I yeah, yeah. Right? Down-home blues. Right. Mm-hmm. It's different. Those particular clubs, though, were they owned by African Americans or were they owned by whites? Most of them were owned by white gangsters. The... Grand Terrace, where Earl Hines popularized, was owned by whites. Now, that was in a black community, but unless you were a friend of a white gangster, you couldn't go to the Grand Terrace. That's a a Persian road, not Persian, but um, 39th, well, around 40th and South Park. So they were owned, but they nurtured these black skill, like Cab Calloway and others, who had talents to do. Cab Calloway went to Crane Junior High School, a junior college, as long as he went my sister. His ambition first was to be a lawyer. He was going to go. But when he learned so much money in, in his entertainment skills, he would go to Cicero and come over to And they were, if you saw the Channel 11 station about prohibition, that they had many of those places called speakeasies. The law enforcement would not bother the people who went to the speakeasy. Why is that? Because they might not get their cut. <laughs> so they would just, you know, the Al Capones would not push off what they control. But because there was a relationship between them, because the whites did not know how much money there was until one of the Jones brothers, taking the rap for not paying their taxes, took the rap for his other two brothers and went to one of the federal prisons in uh, Indiana, and a famous white Italian gangster was there at the same time. And the thing was Ted Jones, but anyway, he was bragging about how good they lived. They had a villa 
in France. Mm. They had a boat. A real boat. A real boat (laughs) that they traveled back and forth. And when he told that story, then this is in the late, this is just before World War II. That guy, I wish I could remember, went back and told his fellow gangsters, and then they decided to take over the policy business. Wow. What year was that? That would have been in the late 30s or early early 40s. Mm -hmm. And they took over the policy business because, and they killed Ted Rowe, who was kind of the manager who refused to get out of the business, and they had to get rid of him. He was a tough guy, too. They had to get rid of him. His wife had a beauty parlor on 51st Street, and they owned a building at 53rd, right across from Bethesda Church, the 53rd in Michigan. And he was coming home, and the gangsters had hid behind the boards there that used to be there with the ad boards and knocked him off. Wow. Mm. So what about the blues? I know everybody's going to the jazz club. That's alive. And then was the Chess Brothers part of bringing the blues, or was it already there and the Chess Brothers just walked into it? The Chess Brothers, come, they come later. It was already. You see, uh, W.C. Handy, who came from Florence, Alabama, where my mother was born, and also Oscar the Priest was born there, started the popularization of the blues. Now, much of that music had been created during and immediately after World War I and was nurtured by, I wish I had paper with me I could read, by blacks who had served in World War I as entertainment artists and brought that back home. Some of them never came back to the United States because they felt better in France than they nurtured the music there and brought there. Josephine Baker, who became very famous, was both blues and jazz, and she left, I forget the name of the theater because that's the first time I had gone to hear some jazz with my mama. My mama took us there. She left and went to Europe and became a famous person at the famous entertainment spot in Paris mm-hmm. and uh, during World War II she had adopted about four or five children of different mm-hmm. ethnic backgrounds and she would come even in combat zones where we were and say anyone here from St. Louis maybe two or three hands anyone here from Chicago a lot of hands would come up well she had lived with when she was in Chicago on the 31st in Dearborn really with friend of this again that period where the, these frame houses were bought owned by blacks and they were well kept and Josephine Baker had roomed with one of my mother's friends who had been in Chicago earlier so people like her who came out of that period some of them with the talent they did not come either went to Europe like one of the friends of Louis Armstrong in that band I forget the name of the band he went to China and never came back so that musical talent that entertainment talent was shared in other places and popularized in other places in the world but it's popularization is we might say it's maturity mm-hmm. took place on the south side of chicago wow what about gospel gospel, gospel? yeah pilgrim baptist church he found thomas dorsey who was a jazz person and a blues person from alabama and georgia who moved to chicago and then when his wife died with an unborn child out of his feeling he created this new form of religion another form of spiritual religion, mm-hmm. and uh, it became popularized by Mahalia Jackson and people like Sam Cooke and later carried forward. So it, it was... Uh, so what I'm saying is in a sense, as much of that is used, had its origin because of the segregation and the talent on the south side, confined to the south side of 
It was made a cultural. The money was the economic. The politics, the concentration of those who came to vote, that was a theory, thing, theme. We put your ass in, mm-hmm. we'll take your ass out. <laughs> and that base, this re- politician had to respect that. That was a fact that he or she could not, he then could not ignore. Who was the first one that you all tried that on? Well, in the first great migration, the politicians, I forget who, who, who they may have been. I, my memory isn't what it mm, used okay. to be. But that was true. Now, there had been uh, black politicians like Oscar the Priest who had run for office and won Cook County Board. If you go to the city hall and the Cook County part of that, you see Oscar the Priest's name on the, That's right. on the thing. Before that, I forget Joan's first name. But he owned most of that land in the downtown area, and later he had been a state representative. Jones, is that the same family that was the policy people? No, I don't know whether they were related or not. Okay. But he was here before that, and he had been a state representative. He was Republican? As a Republican. Yep, I read about him. See, the blacks who fled the South because the South politically voted Democrat, most of them were Republicans. My mother didn't vote for the Democratic Party until, uh, I think, Kennedy. Wow. And her attitude was, didn't Lincoln free the slaves? Well, that was her feeling, and she didn't know the history well enough to know that the guy who forced Lincoln to free the slaves was a black man by the name of Frederick Douglass, Mm -hmm. who said, go win the war, you better free the slaves, Mm -hmm. because they would lose in the Civil War before then. Mm. And when they freed, and the blacks, that's another part of the story, the blacks immediately who were freed, like my grandfather, my father's father, fled slavery and joined the, what's your name, Army. Civil War, blacks received 17 Congressional Medals of Honor in that period. So there were those who went into the political world earlier in the North. Sometimes they couldn't be identified because most of them were Caucasian by fathers and were light-skinned, and you couldn't tell. In fact, during the race riot of 1919, there were blacks who lived on the North side. And when their white neighbors began to talk about niggers and all that, their black blood came up. (laughs) 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 And that's a fact. Mm -hmm. And so in that, that talent, that experience also, you see, and people like my Uncle Billy, my mother's, one of her brothers, who was a product of a mixed relationship, he was a Pullman porter and a Pullman, and then he became a uh, prominent chef on the railroad, and he would travel because he was selected, because his skill was so, and he would just listen to what white folks would say, and then he would uh, talk about, then he would come back to this family, this ghetto, and they would talk about what those hunkers said, Mm -hmm. and they would laugh and have fun talking about it. Mm -hmm. My father would be talking about, like, guy came, I remember... That's one of the advantages some of us have. Guys say, Dixie, come to our house to have dinner or so. Dixie, do you know God? What, you know, do, do you think the Lord know how these, these uncles are treating us down here? <laughs> Daddy said, yeah, he know. He just don't give a damn. <laughs> <laughs> that was therapeutic. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I learned that later. That was therapeutic. I got to work, but I'm going to listen. And I'm going to bring that information back Mm -hmm. to be shared. Yes. So these children know how to behave. Mm. They didn't say that, but that was one of the things that was happening. That's right. They learned social behavior in a hostile 
operation. So how many people do you think came from the South? And that seems like they were coming fast. They were coming fast. From 1914 to 1920, when 1914, there was something like 23,000 people of African descent in Chicago. By 1920, that number had almost quadrupled to 100,000. And by the time I went to the Army in 1943, that number in the same congested period was close to 220,000. Then with the second great migration, I'd like to help you yes. think about separating. I'm not talking about those who were similar to the first graduate, because during World War II, uh, there were a lot of college graduates knowing that there were better jobs in the South who were coming, wanting to come to the North, and they were given jobs sweeping the floor. And all of when Mr. Randolph made a public comment, statement. If the President of the United States can't let these children have jobs that they're qualified to, we're going to start a march on Washington. That was the first threat of a march on Washington, 1940. That's, really? That was the first. It may, I may have the date. By, by A. Philip Randolph, Randolph. Was head of the Pullman Porters, right? That's right. He had been elected, so selected by the Pullman Porters who wanted to organize, and they needed a leadership that was known and was, you know, articulate enough. So they asked Mr. Randall, who was from Florida and had been an organizer, a street guy in New York, 125th and 7th Avenue, which was kind of the uh, place where speeches like his would go on, like uh, W.D. Du Bois and, uh, and Paul Rosen and all those guys. So when he made that statement, now, at this point, Franklin Delano Roosevelt has just been elected, and part of his election was because of the black vote. And then, even without television and all that, we have become universalized as being racist. Wow. What year was this? This is in the, this 1939 or 40. Mr. Randolph, seeing these skilled young people leaving the South, because there are better opportunities for jobs. In World War II, made that threat. The president signed an executive order about employment of blacks in the war industry. Mm. That broke that barrier. We were voting up here, but we weren't voting in the South. Is that what it was? Unless you put your life on the line. And there were blacks who did that, like my crazy dad. He would go put his pistol in his pocket and go vote. But see, that's again some of the complications. They would let him, this crazy man, go vote because he was Hugo Black's nigger. See, I get my slave name from the black heritage. I have not tracked because it's too much, too much work. My African background name. See, not all blacks, almost all blacks in the United States have mixed heritage. Sure. But we are blamed for our African heritage. Wow, that's and, powerful. Well, that's it because... Of the economics, see, I say to my to young people, white, black, brown, whatever, ask the simple question: When you go shopping, what are you go looking for? They will fizzle around, fizzle around. And so eventually, one say, Mister Black, when I go shopping, I look for the best I can find for the cheapest, cheapest price. What do you think the slave traders did when they went to Africa? The best they could find. Not old broke up old man like Mister Black. Smart young people like yourself. Mm. Mm. They understand that. Mm -hmm. See, to give them, you come from the cream of the crop. Mm -hmm. We didn't volunteer our African. I said, and then there were those who didn't know it, but they had the spiritual attitude. Before I be your slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord. Mm -hmm. So they weren't singing that, but that's the way they felt. But your heritage, talking to black kids, I'm so glad the trouble don't last always. Mm. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my Lord. Now, you owe them. 
That's right. That's but right. They could have had the other, and you wouldn't be here. That's right. That's amazing. <laughs> so they learned. All of them learned mm -hmm. from that. My African ancestors did not volunteer to come here. And when I go to Senegal, I see this on the port there, they have reserved, preserved the slave deport part mm -hmm. of bringing the slaves. Mm -hmm. Why didn't they fight back? They did. Most of them died because they didn't have the same kind of weapons. Now, slavery had existed before that, but slavery in the Mideast was by families. and by, But in the slave trade that they brought to the New World primarily, they separated the families. They were chattel. They were not human. Mm -hmm. So when, we, when they wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all then men are created equal. They did not include people of African background. Those who came from Europe to keep them separated, even them separated, mm -hmm. they had left Europe with white indentured servants. But in Virginia, I forget if it was 16, 1743 or something like that, the law was passed that blacks and whites could not intermarry. That did not change until the Civil Rights Movement. And in Mississippi, it's still part of it. Wow. So the people who came to Chicago primarily were not ignorant. They may have been unlettered and unschooled, like in World War II in my unit. I had not experienced seeing young men in their late teens who volunteered primarily to get away from, who couldn't read or write, but they could shoot. Right. And when we got into France with all those pretty single girls whose boyfriends were somewhere else, they learned to speak French real quick. So it didn't mean they were ignorant. They had been deprived mm -hmm. of the opportunity. So the second great migration can be separated along lines of opportunity. They were pushed off the land. And then Mr. Hansberry, by that time, had taken his second case to the Supreme Court, Shelley versus Kramer, which ruled that restrictive covenants were unenforceable anywhere in the country. And people like me, returning from World War II, old enough, well, I was old enough before I went, to get married, no longer can, don't want to stay with mom and daddy. This when with the GI Bill of Rights, we had certain privileges that gave us the opportunity to move into new neighborhoods like Chatham, Avalon, Hyde Park, South Shore, and we did it and left our less fortunate brothers and sisters in the old ghetto. Wow. Separated. And what year was that? This is after World War II. So this would have had to be late 40s? This would have been in the late 40s because now these people are pushed off the land. Right. Because they did not, they, they were pushed off the land. They didn't deny the skills of learning to read and write and all, uh, go to school. And the creation of new agricultural technology made them unnecessary. Wow. You could, a cotton picker could pick more cotton in a day than a hundred men mm -hmm. had formed. Now, they had, because of their needs and background, had four, five, six, seven, eight children. Gotcha. Now they come to the city where they no longer have jobs after a while, after World War II. They no longer have the skills or the discipline they're confined. They tear down, this is in the 50s and 60s, however, tear down those old houses and build public housing. Robert Taylor. Mm -hmm. The green part, of, green part of Cabrini Green. The Cabrini in the place on the north side had been for poor Jews and poor Italians, but that was permanent housing mm -hmm. for low rouses. Ida B. Wells was permanent housing for the 
people who didn't didn't have families. And the low rise, because Ida B. Wells was a low rise. It was low rise. Cabrini, first portion of it was low rise. It was low rise. That Those was, were supposed to be permanent housing. Permanent housing for people whose incomes were limited. Okay. But as soon as you made enough money, you could move out of there so some other people like you right. could move in. So these big tall structures came because of the amount of people that were coming, right? Why were the tall ones built? To confine this new population. Now, you get a social and cultural change, and these people are now confined to these high-rises because they cannot afford to move into Hyde Park, Chatham. We northerners who had been here for a long time, we're snobbish. You reached these. a certain level of prosperity, we, right? We, we had a social attitude toward these country people. They walked different. They talked different. Mm, they're playing country blues. They can't read as well. Right away, we don't want our children to go to school with them. These are black people talking about other black people. Talking and thinking about them. Mm. This is a social division. Now, similarly, that had happened with other groups. Shanty Irish versus Silk Stocking Irish. West Side Jews versus South Side Jews. Mm. And... So with this new population and us snobbish people, we don't want to be bothered with them. As a, so they don't like us either. My children, born of, in the so-called middle class, are protected but resented. My late son, Tim, that's another big story, would be victimized if he was exposed to the same school that Jeff Ford went to. Because mm-hmm. gotcha. he'd be caught on the streets going back and forth to school. And if he didn't join the gang, mm-hmm. he'd be hurt. Mm-hmm. So was that the same in the second migration? Is that what's in, I'm, I'm still not clear how we got on the west side. Then the west side became more available because the Jewish population around 12th Street, which we used to call Jewtown, but Maxwell Street, more acceptable, began to move out. And there's availability of housing now that had more reasonable price that had not been available earlier. So that population began to explode in terms of numbers. And then when Ida B. Wells, no, what's the one on the west side? My wife. Uh, not the one on State, not the not on State and Lake. I mean, there was a... Uh, oh, my goodness. The low-rise, I forget. My wife is working on a Lecla- Not LeClaire. To be... Um, what's a famous woman? Oh, uh, uh, Jane Adams. Jane Adams, yeah, mm-hmm. Jane Adams. Now, they're going to build a museum mm-hmm. about public That's housing. That's right. But it's going to be... So Jane Adams had been primarily poor Jews and Italians. Then they built a high-rise on the other side of 12th Street mm-hmm. for these new Arribes mm-hmm. Negroes. And they're confined to that. But that's temporary housing, as was the building of Robert Till and that whole strip from about Garfield on the south to 22nd Street on the north. Temporary high-rises. In Ida B. Wells, they built high-rises. In Lathrop, they built high-rises. All temporary because now institutions like the University of Chicago, like IIT, like University of Illinois in Chicago, want that land. That land is precious land because it is in proximity to other things like the like good transportation, public transportation, on the south side near Lake Michigan and so forth. Mm-hmm. When the second great migration was announced, you see the restrictive covenants have been protected by Bob, I forget his name, Robert Hutchins, brilliant, radical man who articulated why restrictive covenants were important. He left because he was too radical and he got into the McCarthy, that's another story, mm-hmm. Joe McCarthy 
anti-communist kind of thing, mm-hmm. and was succeeded by a man by the name of Lawrence Kempton. When the Second Great Migration uh, occurred in anger, Lawrence Kempton said, "When the second, not the Second Great Migration, the second uh, restrictive covenant was uh-huh. voted mm-hmm. in anger, he said, we're going to either move or take over the whole damn thing.' Now I knew I was at the university at the time. I knew that." That minister, his church was evangelistic. That he was not going to be singing, oh, 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 somebody touched me in Rockefeller Chapel every Sunday. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. Then that process began to bring about the change that would keep the university isolated in a sense. The same thing was happening. And a group of the administrators got together of those college and universities, primarily led by the, by the university. I'm not speaking of faculty now. There was a very distinct difference between faculty and ministries. And went to Washington to get advice, help from the president. And that supported a thing called, that supported urban renewal, which we immediately called Negro removal. Because it dealt with a privilege that the cities, Chicago had, that can call land, public land, wherever, that's a eminent domain. That had always been used in the area called Lake Meadows Prairie Show. Lake, that's right. That was built primarily for middle-class folks. Originally, that was bought by New York University, the land. Really? What yeah. was the benefit of New York University buying that? Whatever the reason, I don't know. They did the same thing in New York. Before. Okay. Originally, it was to be just white. Now, the blacks who lived in that Lake Meadows Prairie Show were middle-class. Most of them moved mm-hmm. to southeast woodlawn and owned housing there. That's another story. That's mm-hmm. to give some idea about the evolution of street gangs. Mm. And so evolution of black street gangs. Mm-hmm. There were always street gangs in Chinatown and always. Why you blame us so bad when you helped us you learn started, how to do yeah. it. When you <laughs> helped us learn how to do it. Mm-hmm. But you know, in Chinatown there were the street gangs. In mm. little little there were street gangs and little Cicero I mean, there were street gangs, mm-hmm. organized street gangs, which they had brought with them from Europe. Wow. So the idea was now we will have middle-class whites moving. The blacks who were moved out were middle-class, educated blacks. They moved into southeast Woodlawn, which is now. You know. So one of my late friends, Earl Strayhorn, who later became a prominent politician, because he had been a commission officer out of, out of University of Illinois, and also had been in combat in Italy as a part of the 92nd and 93rd Division. His mother-in-law had owned and lived in one of those houses on Durban. His wife and his mother-in-law and father-in-law had lived in their houses. But Earl was not going to live on Durban. Mm -hmm. That's another story. Mm -hmm. Us folks who lived east of State Street, Uh you lived north, west of Durban. No, no, we're not going over there. Uh (laughs) I'm talking and trying to dramatize an attitude. That's right. You see, of class. Right. Even though you don't have any money. Still pervasive today in Chicago. That's not new, right? Even though you don't have any money. Yep. So Earl, because he, by this time, was Earl a lawyer. Yeah, he was a lawyer before he went. Anyway, taking advantage of the GI Bill of Rights, he won this home. He moved. He, He became the first resident, not black or white. He became the first resident of Lake Meadows. And that kind of broke that barrier, and along with uh, my pastor, who Woodlawn AME Church, that's another personal story, but anyway. Did whites ever live in uh, Lake Meadows? Huh? Did, because of that, did whites ever live in Lake Meadows? No. I, did they ever my, take it this, over? This is my third time around. 
My wife is quite a bit younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> We've been married quite a long time. Uh-huh, that's right. That's right. So w- when they admit- so that Lake Meadows Prairie Shores, mm-hmm. but just south of that thirty fifth, that was the building of Ida B. Wells. Sure. And the first managers of Ida B. Wells was Oscar Brown Sr. He had also, but he was not a pauper. He, he was a, you know, Oscar Brown Sr. was yeah. an educated, privileged black man who was also a radical. Uh-huh. And you can understand Is this. that Oscar Brown that we know, the singer Oscar Brown? Was that his dad? That was his daddy. Wow. Oscar Brown Sr. was his dad. Mm-hmm. Oscar Brown Jr. was the it's Oscar Brown. And, mm-hmm. Maggie's I mean, father. Mm-hmm. Met, his, met his father. Uh-huh. And uh, so he was a friend of uh, Robert Taylor. So you see, you had this cluster of those privileged blacks. The Rosenwald was built. The Rosenwald was not called the Rosenwald. What was it initially? Initially, it was the Michigan Avenue Boulevard Apartments, mm. created for by Rosenwald for middle-class blacks who were overcrowded in the middle-class blacks. There was no poor folks. Right. Many, most of those who went restricted covers and they moved in Hyde Park, Kenwood, and bought those mansions and stuff with coach housing and all. Right. They were professional people. Uh, and and uh, Robert Till, uh, who was kind of a friend of Jewish Rosemont, and then when the original housing was built on Cottage Grove Heath, they were also the people who managed that and uh, Oscar Brown's family lived temporarily because of management. But now, when the restricted covenants were finished and they're building this temporary housing, uh, and housing is close, that was a idea. These people who coming into the temporary housing, Robert Taylor and that whole strip, the west side, the north side, they, the families coming in the second great migration, they, people coming, in my migrations coming from the army, white or black, who wanted to live in that housing, if they had certain income, they could not live in that high-rise public housing. If this family coming, husband and wife with children, with a lot of children, if there was a male in the house who was not working, this mother could not receive public aid. Mm-hmm. The men stopped coming home. I was doing social work in that early period, too, and I didn't do it, but others did. If I, I had access to that apartment anytime for investigative purposes, mm-hmm. and if I found a male's shoes, mm-hmm. I was supposed to report back, and she no longer had the privilege. Mm-hmm. Men stopped coming home. And because of income in that condition, those families, though that happened not quite the same way. Those families began to be controlled by the mother or the grandmother or the no male models mm-hmm. that I experienced in my time around them. Unable to read well, count well, going to schools where the teachers did not take those social. Older boys, now I know this because I was in social work at the early period. Those boys, the older boys, became the breadwinners. And though the mother didn't like that, she needed some bread. Mm-hmm. The older boys become the heroes, the mm-hmm. breadwinners of the family. So that's why we're seeing this today. You think that is... It's more intense today, maybe, than right than before. That, that started back in when? What year? This is in the, the 40s and the 50s and became better organized. 
in the six gangs on the south side, the west side. Now, we tried to bring the gangs on the south side. Jeff Ford, Jeff was a student of mine at Hyde Park, and all those guys were students. But they had a tracking system at Hyde Park at other schools that the privileged people, the literate people, would be in the upper track. Mm -hmm. At Hyde Park, whites, most of many of them had parents that taught at the University of Chicago mm -hmm. who wanted them to go to a mixed race or school. But the top tracks that would be African-Americans or Africans, mm -hmm. not, not all African-Americans are Af American, mm -hmm. I don't know African. By this time, there are Africans coming, you know, from privileged parts, privileged families in mm -hmm. Africa. Mm -hmm. And um, you got uh, Japanese, children Japanese, Nisei, Kibe, whatever the level. Mm -hmm. And and uh, and black, blacks, these upper-class Caucasians and and, and, and Asians, but primarily Japanese, mm -hmm. of, who born and reared in America, mm -hmm. for the most part. That's another story that mm -hmm. Japanese experienced during World War II. Mm -hmm. And um, and uh, at the bottom, in the lower track, were uh, Puerto Ricans and these children, grandchildren, of the new Arrives, who are now living in housing mm -hmm. that the folks from Lake Meadows, in the area of Lake Meadows, and they're living these upper levels of the housing, rooming housing, mm -hmm. and the privileged were living on the bottom floor with the three and four bedrooms mm -hmm. and all. The children do not relate to one another. Mm -hmm. And so that isolation, which has always been on between blacks on the west side and blacks on the south side, becomes a community on the south side. And still the black Gangsters on the South Side different, but blacks who have moved from the South Side to the West Side, like the Renata Howe Barrett and that group, mm -hmm. they because they're so sophisticated, they take over the leadership. Gotcha, because they were a little more sophisticated. Oh when yeah, they left the South Side, they can go to the West Side and become the kings and queens of the. I gotcha. You understand? Yes. They take their spirits and yeah. they can mm -hmm. buy those nice houses. Yes. Now and become the leadership. I got you. And that gives the West Side then a base of organizing skills and power, mm -hmm. which we use later with Bennett Johnson and others, Harold Washington, to bring the two groups together. Mm -hmm. When was the best time for black folks in Chicago, do you think? The best time? Best time. The best, best era. Best, best era. Mm -hmm. On a cultural, social basis, that period in which I grew up in the first great migration. Mm. That was the best time. I think we can measure that even in terms of the consummation. Most of the people of my generation, whether it was South Side or West Side, were mostly South Side because there weren't that many blacks on the West right. Side. The blacks on the West Side didn't gain any political strength until after the Second Great Migration. Really? Mm, they didn't. The first alderman, 24th Ward, who was later killed, by the way, when he challenged to run for Congress, uh, was a uh, was after oh that was in the late fifties or early sixties really? I forget his name right offhand but when he said he was going to run for Congress a third congressional district which now is Danny Davis's mm -hmm. spot mm -hmm. he was in his office and he was killed we don't know what or why but he was killed so with Dr King because of his way he moved to the West Side to try and bring the two together in 68, 66 or 68, whenever he came. 
to bring those two together because he saw the difference. And because of his background, socially, culturally, in Atlanta, but his universal attitude stimulated and encouraged by Gandhi, he felt a responsibility to try and bring the two together. Now, when, when he was assassinated later, the blacks on the west side who had such a, they rampaged. The blacks on the south side did not do that, rioting and stuff. They were angry and all that, but they were dealing with the social and also eventually the political. And if one wants to understand more easily why a black man became the first president of the United States, it's easy to do it looking at the south side more than the west side. Mm -hmm. Could Obama have moved as fast politically as he did on the south side or any other place in the United States? Right. The social, political, because you see, our friends, our radical, liberal, white friends, like Milk Corn and Studs Turkle and all those, they had been like, I mean, they were universalists before World War II. And we used to have a gathering place when I was still a little boy, elementary school at Burke School. Across the street in Washington Park, there was a forum called the Washington Park Forum. And blacks would come to Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, they would come to Washington Park Forum. This is during World War II, when there was no, what we call, the New Deal. These kind of people, with their friends on the West Side, were demanding where people like my father and others get laid off. There was no social security, with none of the things that we have today. And the Communist Party rose more greatly during that period, embodied people like the late Margaret Burroughs, who was a young woman at that young, well, she was mm-hmm. still a schoolgirl. Mm-hmm. Charles White, my childhood friend, who was a great artist. You know. And we young people would be taken by our crazy fathers over to hear these crazy people talk. We thought it was real good. And if somebody got put out of their house, one of these relatively young, what well, I'm trying to think of some of the names, but, but we say, Miss Jones just got put out. Let's go put her back in. <laughs> and we would go, it was fun. <laughs> you know, right. it was fun. So us. Chicago was had bold people. Is that, is that a good way to say it? Yeah, yeah. yeah We've yeah. always been bold. Because when you hear people come from another city and they come to Chicago, they cannot believe how progressive our people are. They think we are really like, you know, we're different kind of black people. Mm-hmm. The way we interact mm-hmm. politically, they think we're different. Mm-hmm. The New Yorkers think we're country. <laughs> <laughs> But see, much of their, much of their, uh, uh, well, how many people know the Harlem Globetrotters were not from Harlem, the South Side of Chicago. The first owner of the South Side of Chicago, and I know this because they were like my big brothers. They couldn't, they went to play basketball down and tried to play. They had a championship team, uh, George Easton, Ren Pullins, and all those guys, and they couldn't get on the teams down at. Uh, University of Illinois, places like that. They came back and formed their own little team. And a black guy from Minnesota by the name of Dick Hudson, he encouraged them. This business group used to meet in, used to have a Southside Negro Business League, for my Louis Caldwell, who became a state representative. Mm-hmm. And he's the one that introduced uh, the idea of t- taking policy and calling it lottery. And uh, when it was supposed to be used for schools, but it hadn't been. And uh, so the uh, Dick Hudson, educated guy from Missouri, he took these young men and formed the the Savoy Big Five, 
They were so good that, that uh, I'm trying to remember his name again, the Jewish guy, uh-huh. bought the team and renamed it because of what we just said, the popularity and the money was in New York. Right. Renamed it Harlem Globetrotters. Mm-hmm. They were well, not started right here. They were from 39th Street. I know who yeah. exactly. I wish I could remember his name if I asked my husband. He don't know. Oh, I, I know oh. his name. I just kept because his daughter is still around. Every yeah, time she is. Miss, uh, what's her name? What's his name? No, Mr. That's Savistein. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Yeah, that's right. That's Right, his, That's right. His daughter, Ertai Phillips, has anything she'll come. That's know. right. Boy, <laughs> I like Miss Saperstein. And you know why? Her daughter, Lonnie, and I are good friends. Lonnie Berkeley. She's an oh, attorney. Miss Saperstein's daughter. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So you see the connection, and that's the reason for young people to know a little bit about this history because they can maybe capture a little of the optimism right. that Sam Cooke said a change is going to come and to believe that the impossible, as, as, as Eisenhower said when we were losing the war during World War II in South and North Africa, and he was appointed to be the commanding general American forces said the impossible we do that immediately. The miraculous sometimes takes a little longer. Mm. Taking that talent of my ancestry from Africa and their belief that they had to stay alive so Tim could be all right. Yes. We have done the impossible many times. Mm. Broke the barriers many times. Why shouldn't we? We come from the cream of the crop. That's right. I, I can be cocky if I need I love that. <laughs> I love that, Professor Black. Let me just ask you a quick question. So what happened to us? What happened to uh, Chicago? You look at it now, you see everything that's going on. You look at us politically. You look at us economically. Uh, what happened to us? Many of us, the talented ones, children of my generation, the children of my generation, in that first great migration, they have developed the skills, the knowledge of the larger dominant community, and they have become absorbed by uh, income into that community. They are isolated from their heritage, and they only feel a responsibility to the dominant group that now has them captive in terms of the economics of that. But even in my generation, that began to happen. You see, people like me and some of us have never been for sale because you got to pay thing. And as my daddy said to my mama, Maddie, pay the rent, buy plenty of food. And then he laughed at me and said, plenty of toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> if you have those three things, what else do you need unless you just want to elaborate on oh, those? <laughs> so there are some folk like me after World War II and during World War II, what we saw. See, I saw Buchenwald when we went into Germany. How human beings can treat in a systematic way way, other human beings, extermination, terrorization, all kinds of things. There were others like me, black and white, and not enough. So our mission has been to make us a better world. We started home, came back home, Progressive Party breaking the barriers in the army. Truman would not have been elected had Progressive Party not transferred its focus on running to say to him, you got to sign an executive order breaking discrimination in the army. But carrying that beyond that, this lays the base when Rosa Parks said, I'm tired of riding, you know, being pushed to the back of the bus. Mm -hmm. But what she said articulated why those in my generation were brought from the South. I'd had the experience of being in my soldier suit 
many other blacks, and I had to get to the run to the back of the bus while somebody not in soldier suit could tell as happened. This nigga sitting on the back of the bus in the, in the wrong seat. I bring that feeling, but I also experienced in France and England, although they had brought their their people from their colonies in Africa to do the dirty work. Why do we see Negroes always under white officers, and we never see any white under Negro officers? Then my American blood comes up. I say to myself, ain't none of you damn business. <laughs> you know, straighten the show up when we get home. <laughs> you know, I, I'm saying what I felt. And That's I, right. I had babe, you know, I, I wasn't going to let them tell me that being American wasn't good. Since they had colonists and they were bringing these people from these colonists, see, getting ready to go to Japan. Mm-hmm. And we hear that there, well, before that, before, before that, with the FFI and all that, the they, in the army, okay, they catch a black guy, whatever it was, and they're beating him, beating him, and uh, I'm trying to get there, but they stop me, mm-hmm. trying to get in to stop that beating. You know that? Mm-hmm. And uh, Nigerian says, "You know, the only good white man is a dead white man." <laughs> And that gave me a feeling about how he felt mm. being a captive, in a sense, of the colonization of Africa. And then when we heard, though I'd been in London when bombs were dropping all over the place, and see, they didn't drop bombs. There was an agreement to drop the bombs on Paris or, or Rome. There was a mutual agreement. But in London, they were targeted all the time and the rest of the place and been and watched. And uh, then we get this information that we have dropped a missile on Hiroshima that immediately killed 100,000 people, a missile the size of a golf ball. Mm-hmm. I've been in London when bombs 40 times bigger hadn't done that much damage. Mm-hmm. And I say to my fellow soldiers, I wish we had gone on to Japan. We were, mm-hmm. That's what we were being prepared for. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, what are we going home? I said, there's no monopoly on intelligence. And if you, get in- if you have intelligence, you'll get knowledge. If you get knowledge, you can do whatever you want to do mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. Today, we have increasing intelligence and knowledge. And the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima mm-hmm. and Nagasaki are obsolete in comparison with once we had the only bomb, then we right. traded the information with Russia. Right. Today, there are about eight or nine mm-hmm. countries that have that capability. Mm-hmm. Some of them have it in North Korea, particularly. So what do I need with any money? I can pay the rent. We have plenty of food. That's right. And this morning, I found out we had a lot of toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> So what else do I need? When I came on this earth, there were something like 2 billion people on this earth needing food, clothing, and shelter in them limited space. Well, given the evolution of time in that time, today there are 7 billion people on this same earth wanting and needing food, clothing, and shelter. I personalize it. What is Jeff Ford and the Blackstone Rangers doing out there in the streets, picking on people like my son, and others like him. He's going for food, clothes, and shelter. My son hadn't done anything to him. But on the other hand, his mother and I were separated at the time. When he gets an opportunity to go to Philip Sandoval, why do these, since he says his score for what they, his white folks score, his score is higher than 85% of them. Mm-hmm. And yet he's being treated badly at this fancy upper middle class white school. In Boston. Yeah. Yeah. He goes to Stanford University. Very similar, only a little. 
Now, why is that? Since he's a nice guy, he's not a hoodlum like his daddy. <laughs> why would they treat my child like that? Why would they treat my daughter? Why would my son not be able to run for Jeb Bush was in the same class. <clears throat> if he'd run for governor of Florida, would he have won? But I have to keep the faith that impossible we do that. So I can wear this cap, though I'm not always happy to wear it, <laughs> saying Obama. Mm-hmm. He exemplifies impossible. This is universal for us to carry to our children, our grandchildren, so they can keep the faith and don't believe that so many of these young blacks, particularly, and the Latinos, particularly the Mexican don't believe they're going to live past 19 or 20 years old. Why should they care about me then? I can personalize them. When I used to walk the streets in the days of the Great Depression, I didn't even think about it. Today, I'm afraid to walk two blocks, you know, in the dark, particularly right. in the dark. That's right. So the changing world is changing in many ways, negative but positive in other ways. This is my last question. What is great about Chicago today for black people? For the middle class, the well-trained is a good place. But for the lower class, as they, as they fiddle with the schools, where are those schools? As we deal with housing and police safety, who gets uh, killed or brutalized more than young blacks? And then why can't I walk the streets? I'm not talking about age as I used to. In the old days of the Depression and the early post-war era, what is happening to change the opportunities or the feelings for opportunities for younger people and for growing numbers of older blacks that now make their, many of their feelings about the future rather dim? So I say that if it happened to me, to my Caucasian brothers and sisters, it won't be long before you. And we can look at the Holocaust in Europe, which is a long time ago, but similar. The first victims of the Holocaust, which most people don't know about, were Afro-Germans. If you read Hitler's uh, Mein Kampf, mm -hmm. you see that he didn't like blacks. No <laughs> kid. <laughs> <laughs> the next were gypsies and then gays. And he had to change his close cabinet because there were some gays in there. Then poor Jews and Polish Jews and German Jews became poor Jews. When they were eliminated or exterminated, then the other Jews, the middle-class Jews, they no longer even have a base to appeal to because they, others have either, either fled or been exterminated. Mm -hmm. So I can look at that history as saying things are better in many ways, for certain groups of people of every ethnicity, religion, you know, but for others, looking at the black experience, you can think about when they're gone, who will be next? Mm. And that's when we see so many young people across in a diversity protesting some of the things that are happening to black people. Mm -hmm. You know, the police... Uh, behavior mm -hmm. and other behavior, and they're out in the streets. So I feel a responsibility as often as possible to talk to or about that little history that I know to help them understand that trouble don't last always, but 
you have to help that trouble not to be. What they're doing is similar to the struggle. They don't have quite the communication when we didn't have all this technology Mm -hmm. that I had listening to mama and daddy, Mm -hmm. uncle and aunt, and the people in the street Mm -hmm. who could say to the teacher, yeah, boy, you gonna you gonna learn this. You gonna learn this geography, mm-hmm. boy, in their own way. And I had no choice. If I did something bad, somebody looking out and see me, call my mama. When I get home, Daddy said, "Pull out your pants, boy." Mm-hmm. See, there's a different way of dealing with that today, because now if my daddy did that, I could sue him. Right. <laughs> but child abuse, right? Yeah. So that places distance between members of the same group or the same family and a lot of distress. But being optimistic, I see enough in young people to believe that in this changing world, they have the ability to make it the kind of world they can live in more comfortably because they have many more things. But the challenge is greater now than it was two generations ago. That's well, a great way to so end. Much. That's a great way to end. You are but an I, incredible I, human I, being. I, I, incredible. It's a incredible, incredible, incredible. It's, incredible.